I sort of want to give you an image to begin the message a little bit. It's sort of an interesting image because what yesterday, the weather was a little bit like today. It was sort of a nice day. And I was walking my dog, Boober, um, around the neighborhood and specifically to that area that you can see the, uh, the pond really well. And I remember I was, I was walking, and I, here, I'll do the walk with you right here, because I got to go by. And I'm walking, and I see across the street, my across-the-street neighbor, a guy named John. I'd love to call him Johnny, but his name's not Johnny. It's John. And he's a former history teacher at Mount Tabor High School. I don't know if you know where that is in Winston, but in that corner of Winston. And he's a former history teacher there, and he's been retired for a number of years now. And he is such a sweet and giving and gentle guy. Rachel knows him well, and uh, he's such a good dude. And I was walking Boober, and I noticed something. Now, there's a difference between him and me in the sense that if you were to look at his lawn, his lawn is perfect. I mean, he's the kind of guy that would get out there on his hands and knees, and you know, if there was one blade a little bit taller than another blade, he'd probably get out there and cut it. He, you know, brings nitrogen and special things on it. And it's so beautiful. It's so thick and lush, it's hard to cut. Have you ever had a lawn like that? Hard to cut with a lawnmower. Anyway, uh, so he's out there, and I noticed something. He's raking his leaves. He's raking, and he's just going to town, going to town, working. Just imagine this guy. He's just working on these. And I, and I walk all the way down, see the pond, the beautiful pond. I walk Boober back, and I notice he's still going at it. He's just going at it like crazy, and he's not done a lot in that time. Like, he hasn't really accomplished much in his raking in that time. He's trying to get these rakes into the, make a little mulch around one of his trees, and I just go up to him, I say, John, what is going on? How are you doing today? I, he's like, oh, I'm raking, I'm raking him. And I know he has a blower. The man has a blower. And I'm like, oh, hey, John, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just trying to, to get these things there. And I notice on his rake that it's one of those old metal rakes. You know, those like the old ones that are a little, they get rusty and they bent out of shape and a couple of the teeth are missing and he just going to, and I, 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 I just couldn't tell him. I said, maybe, John, maybe the reason why you're not getting, I couldn't say is maybe the, you're using the wrong rake. I mean, it's hard to get a lot of, Anyway, I didn't say it to him, but it just reminded me how difficult things can be if you don't have the right tools to accomplish the job. Gosh, it just remi it reminds me a little bit of that story. It's, it's, if, if you don't have the right stuff, it's hard to do something. Have you ever heard the story in the Bible where it's about the, the Hebrew slaves and they're making bricks without straw? A sort of a euphemism, the idea that it's, it's impossible to, I mean, it's very difficult to make bricks without straw, and in the story, they're sort of given this task that makes it impossible. And I want to talk about that a little bit in the sense that if we go back to Exodus, there in chapter 5, we get Moses and Aaron, and they're going up to the big Pharaoh, and they say to him, hey, I need to, we need to go and have a little bit of a festival. We're going to go out to the countryside. We're going to have a little festival. And we're going to celebrate for three Ds. We're going to sing praises. We're going to play instruments. We're going to be doing some dancing. I mean, it's like a really good festival. 
and then we'll come back. And we've got to sing it in praise of uh, our Lord, our God. Now, you've got to understand what's going on here and why Pharaoh is not too happy about hearing all of this. So what happens is, so when we think of slavery, when we think of the Hebrew slaves, we think of it in terms of the slavery we had in our own country, which is just sort of this perpetual slavery from birth, and there's nothing you could do, and it's just sort of what you lived with, and you have this constant person lording over your back. But that was not the slavery that they were experiencing. It wasn't that. If you know the Hebrew folks at the time, they were shepherds and herders, and so they had goats and sheep, and their primary job was to make sure that these goats and sheep kept living to provide skin and meat. Oh, gosh, I guess that's wrong. If they, Anyway, you get the idea, right? That they needed these. That was their primary job. But what happened in this system in Egypt was that during the course of a year, there would be a time where you would be responsible for making bricks. It would be your turn to do it. And so what they would do is, it was such a corporate activity, basically the pharaohs had a monopoly on brick making at that time. And they actually know this from archaeological records. All of the bricks are stamped with a pharaoh's mark. And what would happen is the, the slaves, the people, the foreigners, the people they expected would, for a portion of the year, come together and make bricks for the pharaoh, for the big projects and everything like that that they're doing. The pyramids. I don't know about the pyramids, but you get the idea. They've got to make bricks, right? And what Moses and Aaron are asking is that in the middle of the brick-making season, right in the middle of brick-making season, they're going to take off for three days and go and have a festival and sing and dance and sing praises to who knows, to the God that is? I don't think so. Right. You think you're going to take off in the middle of working time? I don't think so. In fact, you know what I'm going to make you do now? You think it was easy before. See, the whole thing was so systematized, they just got the slaves in there. The straw was provided, right? makes bricks stronger. You think that? No, you're getting your own straw. And the same number of bricks were required, and because they couldn't do it all together at the same time, they would beat these people. But you know what? It makes me wonder a little bit. You ever been forced to make bricks? Has that ever been your lot in life? You ever been forced to do anything? You know, when you, when you think about it, how, how, what, what is the quality of your bricks when you're forced to do them? You know, the, the idea is that they had to, to get the straw and stuff like that, and they got so, they just didn't have enough time. But in some ways, how can you ever make enough bricks or good quality bricks when you're making bricks for other pharaohs, for their pyramids, and for what they want. Has that ever been your lot in life where you're just making bricks? You just seem sort of tied to brick making to, to build up somebody else's edifice? And how sad and maybe meaningless. How you would cry out to God for freedom. For relief. For a different life. tell you about some brick makers that I've met in life. 
if you were to ask uh, the average Quaker, I want to say the average Quaker, in the United States, if you said, what's the average Quaker's job in America? I'd just say maybe a social worker, maybe teacher. I don't know, a profession like that, maybe something in that kind of field. But if you were to ask the average one in the world, the very answer, I mean, since the half of the Quakers live in Africa, the average one would say farmer would be the number one. If you were to go to the Rift Valley there where hundreds of thousands of Quakers are, where the Quakers are the dominant faith right there, they would say farmer. And the second occupation, the very second one they would say, is that of brickmaker. Because if you ever go to these communities, there's some of these little villages I went to that are all Quakers. You've got to walk a couple hours just to get into the village. But you know that they're there because it's the kind of place that there are no jobs. Right? You could walk all the way in one direction and not be able to get a job and walk all the way to another one. It's very difficult to get employment. And so you knew you were sort of coming into a little village is, is, is what you would see, is you would see how the little Quakers there, they would take their front yards or whatever yards they have, and they're famous for this really beautiful red clay. And you'll see that the whole front yard has been completely carved out into bricks. And you just see it. They have thousands of bricks there that are just really waiting for something. And I asked him, I said, gosh, why do you, I mean, I, you know, I know there's not a lot of work and they, there's nothing really, there's not a lot to do, so rather than do nothing, they make these bricks. And I said, gosh, what are you making them for? Are you making them to build something? They say, well, sometimes we do. But for the most part, people are, they make these bricks in order that one day, possibly, hopefully, if there's good enough bricks and, and somebody out there will buy them. They don't know if someone is going to buy them. They don't know if somebody's going to come along and say, hey, we need a lot of bricks. But if somebody does, then it happens. The bricks will be ready. Has, has that ever been you? You ever made up a whole bunch of bricks not even knowing if they will ever be used, but just in the hope that somehow, somewhere, there will be an opportunity to use them. I tell you, when I thought of this message today, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta be honest. When I thought about this message, it, 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 this brick is is part of this message. This is, you know, if I had to do the children's message today, this was gonna be what I was gonna talk about right here. This brick, and this brick is a brick from well, this meeting house. Barbara could tell us where the brick was from, but I don't know exactly where, but it's from this meeting house. And what inspired me was I took some photographs as I was sort of walking around. I thought it was really beautiful this last week. And I, I got some photographs and I put them on Facebook, and man, they were a hit. <laughs> if you can have a, a lot of likes, a lot of likes. And I thought about how beautiful this structure is, the beautiful of the bricks and the color. There's just something incredible about it. So I did a little bit of research, and I, and I found out a little bit about how this place came to be. Now, 
I don't know if you know this, but the very first meeting house that was built here in 1758 was a wooden meeting house. It looked, they said, like a barn. Like a big barn. Like a really big barn. And it had two wings on the side of it, and they must have loved it. The people here must have loved it, because they, they kept it for 120 years. Could you imagine meeting every single week in a barn, and just, the, they must have loved it. Because in 1870, when they finally got the idea that maybe we don't want to meet in the barn anymore, no way, we're meeting in the barn, Right? They had sort of got this idea that maybe they would build a, a different meeting house, and it was such a controversial thing. They were trying to raise $2,000. They couldn't raise the money. Couldn't raise $600. And they worked on it, and they basically, every single month, could you imagine what monthly meeting was like? Every single month, for a year, for over a year, every single month they would meet about this, they would talk about it, no decision, and table next month, and do it again. Every single month they did it. And again, it was about a year, maybe a little over a year later, they finally said the go-ahead, and I, I wish we had a Mendenhall here in the congregation, because they got it through. Gosh, those Mendenhalls, they were the ones really pushing it. And to show you a little bit about what the way they were thinking about it, by the time it was approved by monthly meeting, they had already made 30,000 bricks. But I was, and 8,000 were on the way. That's what they were saying. It eventually would take 133,000 bricks to make this. In 1875, $133,000. And I could talk about a lot of folks in that. I could talk about the Mendenhalls, but I'm not going to talk about them. I'm going to talk about the brickmakers. Those brickmakers. You know, if the bricks came from, they didn't come from far away. They came from across the street right there. Apparently, a long time ago, you could see a big depression there or a big uh, sort of pond that was created by all the bricks. But the people who made the bricks, once they got the approval were a, some brothers named the Beards. Now, these Beards were relatives of the famous hat maker, uh, I think David Beard, right? He's famous. His hats are amazing. I found out about his hats. I want a David Beard hat. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm looking at her I'm like, well, what is she? Like, she can provide one. Anyway, they were relatives. They're not famous. He was famous. People would come all over for one of his hats. These guys just made bricks. Made them right over there. Made thousands and thousands and thousands. And the one I really want to talk about is a guy named William Beard. He had his own little kiln, his own little place. And he made brick after brick. And there were so many buildings around this area that were made by him and his brother. And if you see pictures of them, they're so beautiful. I think this may be the last one remaining. But he was the kind of guy that was a caretaker of the place. And for years, for decades, after he built this place, he cared for it. He's the one who dug the graves, repaired these windows if they got broken. He would come in in the morning on a cold day and warm the fire, the stoves. He loved this place. He loved it. And in some ways, you can just sort of sense his spirit still with us. And you know, you think about all those bricks, all those bricks that he made. 
And we just think about the exterior in a way, the ones that we can see, the very beautiful ones, but for every one of those, there's a, a whole bunch more that we'll never see that only he and his brother know about. You know, I was thinking about what, you know, in the Bible study, what we're going through, we're going through Genesis. Gosh, I got to thank my Bible study folks right now because it's not always easy. We went through one of the lists, you know, the begots and the begots and the begots. Whew, it's a lot of begots. But one of the things that we covered in Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning, actually the very first thing we covered was the idea of when God makes people, he makes them out of the clay, out of the very clay from the ground. My gosh, it would be wonder to see how God did that, you know, with, I guess he's a pretty good sculptor. But, you know, all they would be, all it would be is clay if God did not breathe into the breath of God into them. It's just clay. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, without the breath of God, the ruah, without that breath of God, they're just clay. As soon as the breath of God is gone, they just go back to dust. There's something about that breath of God. But what is it? What is the breath of God? Where can we sense it here? And when you think about the building, a building that's been around here so long, there must have been something, there's something about it. Is it the bricks? The beautifully made, they can make a building last as long as it does, or is it something else? Because you know what I was thinking? You know what? They built a lot of buildings. And yet this is the only one standing. There are probably other buildings that were better made, that were, they were built with better materials, but there's something about this place is the kind of place that you would want to just keep forever. It's something about the spirit of the place, about the people's spirit and the light that they share with one another that is truly reflective of the spirit or the breath of God. There's something holy about it, not just in the bricks or the place, even though we're here at a cemetery, the holiness comes from the people itself that are gathered together here to preserve it. Not just the building, but the light and the spirit. Because the bricks that hold a place together aren't just the clay bricks that surround us, but the very flowers we have in front of us. The chicken pies that we, that we have to, to celebrate and eat. And I'm going to have my first one. They say it's amazing. It is. <laughs> it's the barbecue. It's the lemonade. It's the people who teach our kids. It's the donations we receive to keep our lights on. It's all of the gifts that we're given. The presence of every one of us here that is truly the light, the brick, the foundation for our community and our worship. And let us be thankful for all the bricks that have been given over the years by the people that we know about the, and the folks that we will never know. Let us be thankful for the bricks that we bring in these days and in these moments. And let us be thankful for the faith that we have that in the future we will have that same foundation and we will have the same bricks that will gather us together. 
Let us be thankful not only for this community, but for all of the bricks in our lives, all of the people that, that support us, that provide our own foundation, that support all of us both on that face that we give to the world, our exteriors, and also into our most hidden of places. Let us be thankful for the bricks in our lives that remind us of our home.